right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Luke Zettelmoyer. Luke is a professor at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington and a research manager at Meta. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. I'm really excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the show as well. Uh, We will have a lot to cover focusing on your work in multimodal generative AI, open source and open science, the effect of data on models and more. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Absolutely. So I've been at the University of Washington for uh, about 13 years. (laughs) So I've been uh, faculty for a while. And before that, I got into AI uh, through grad school and so forth. And then I've been at Meta for about over five years now, kind of looking at scaling things, looking at different applications of things, trying to do larger scale LLM type work. But really, you know, the interest kind of for me spans across like lots of different kind of use cases. These models are really fascinating. We don't really understand how they work or why they work. And they're also kind of locked away. You know, can we open them up? Can we give people access to them? Can we study them more? to make them more usable, these kinds of things. And I don't know, I've always just been kind of fascinated about like, what's the limit of what we can do with models? And and that's really what drove Mm -hmm. me into the field. And it's kind of still what I'm doing now, if that makes sense. Nice. How has the recent popularity of large language models impacted your research agenda? It's, It's really exciting. I think the resources involved to do the research changes. And so you have to kind of figure out how, what kind of work you're going to do. Like training one of these models is now a gigantic team in a supercomputing effort. And mm-hmm. a few years ago, individual researchers could train state-of-the-art models for things and everything has just really changed. But then also, as one of my students, Ari Holtzman, often says, sometimes our whole field has shifted. Like now, whereas we used to be more of an engineering or algorithmic science kind of thing, we're almost now like a complex system science or a natural science. Like we have these emergent things, we built them. So it's not exactly the same thing as studying the weather, but we still don't understand how they behave. We understand how the individual neurons interact. There's nothing surprising in the math, but the emergent behavior, we don't understand. That's really fascinating to me. That's like a whole new thing that didn't exist before. In what ways does your research focus in on trying to gain that understanding relative to some of the other topics that we'll be jumping into, like multimodal and other things. Are you do you have projects that are kind of probing into these models and, and trying to understand how they work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think we've done a whole variety of different projects over the years. Some places where we've done a lot of analysis, for example, is in a multilingual setting. So the fact that mm-hmm. you can, you know, that every model is multilingual now is kind of shocking. You can try to filter the data. So my student Tara Blevins had this really nice paper. You can try to filter the data, but classifiers have 1% error. So even if you try to train only on English, 1% of hundreds of billions of tokens is a lot of data. And the models mm-hmm. will be multilingual no matter what, right? And that's fascinating to me. So it's, it's kind of hard. I haven't done a lot of work on like mechanistic understanding. I know there's great work at Anthropic and other places on that. But even just like thinking about data's effect on how the model behaves and what the models can and can't do when you train them different ways and exactly what emerges, I think that's also a type of analysis, maybe more kind of input-output style that I find really interesting. Yeah, you know, when I think about the the topics that, again, uh, mentioned that we'll be talking about and that kind of are driving your current research, multimodal effect of, of data on models, open source, like kind of articulate how those all tie together. What's the, the unifying thread? 
Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, I'm sort of freewheeling. I kind of have a lot of threads and I enjoy that, like the sort of variety. <laughs> uh, but roughly speaking, <laughs> I don't know that I really have one perfect thread. Some researchers are better at that than others. I just, I love curiosity. And I love going in lots of directions. But one That's thing I totally do fair. feel really strongly, <laughs> I do feel really strongly about like the effect of data. And so one interesting trend is like, we're on this incredible scaling curve right now right? So models are getting bigger, we're spending more compute, and actually parameter size probably isn't the right metric, probably like amount of compute and amount of data is the right metric, vaguely. But one cool thing is like, as we scale, you have to scale both of those lock and step, right? GPT-N is always going to have more compute and more data, and probably more parameters mm -hmm. too. But the interesting thing is to think about where these trends break as a researcher, and you want to like think out a little bit. So for example, like we're going to run out of data someday. There's no question, mm -hmm. right? And especially if you're thinking about text-only models, it's going to be sooner rather than later. Like you could try to guess how many trillions of tokens of text there are on the web and, you know, Google and Bing have way more of that than anyone else. So there's like lots of extra caveats, but it's probably not much more than an order of magnitude that larger than what we're trading on right now. I mean, maybe somebody else could come up with another estimate, but we're going in order of magnitude every year, roughly, right now. So the right. runway probably isn't that long. So one cool thing with multimodal is kind of just that raw scaling trend. So if you're going to run out of text, you should be training on more interesting data. You know, so that's kind of silly. It's it's kind of formulaic. Another aspect of it that I find really exciting is like the grounding problem, right? So the models learn a lot about how the world works, a lot about common sense from text only. But I think most researchers, or at least a lot of researchers, think that text only isn't going to get you there. And you need to like have visual grounding and eventually maybe embodiment, but even as a step towards embodiment, you know, maybe video, maybe audio, maybe other things into the model. And I think that's where most of the big model training projects are kind of going over time. I think you're going to see basically all the models move from being text only to be multimodal over the next year or two. And, you know, it's an exciting trend because there's like a lot more signal, a lot more to learn, learn from, and hopefully the models will be able to do really interesting new things, that extra data. Video and images come up frequently as a potential way to ground text and to make models richer. I'm curious, do you have a favorite example in research, like a favorite paper or something like that, that demonstrates this? And I guess I'm asking because it's always, it's still to some degree a future, like it's a direction that folks are going as opposed to, we have demonstrated it to a degree though, and I'm wondering what your favorite example of that is. I see. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't have deep insights that you don't have already here, but, you know, Dolly 3 just came out and like the pictures are amazing and like highly compositional and they really, they've got some pretty deep understanding of some of the spatial stuff in the text, right? And a lot of the compositionality mm -hmm. of describing objects in the world and there's other ways of learning about compositional semantics and how things compose, you know, language and code gives you interesting windows into that too. And that is kind of grounding if you ever actually execute that code. But I think the sort of the next token prediction in words is a very direct relationship between, you know, a piece of text and the next piece of text. But yeah. the text to image is much less direct. And so the fact that these models can produce these beautiful images with these very compositional suggests that there's something really interesting going on there. You're learning things there that you wouldn't have learned from the text alone. One of our longer term mm -hmm. goals, I think you were hinting at also in your question, was like, could we ever, say, add images to a text-only language model and then it would be better at a text-only task than if it had been trained without those images, right? That's kind of a holy grail, like yeah. showing transfer from images back into the text domain. And I, I haven't seen any examples of things like that yet, but I think we will get there. And it, earlier this year, or uh, around, I think January this year, we had a scaling laws of multimodal competition paper 
where we looked at training LLMs. Armin was the first author on this. We looked at training LLMs on single modalities, pairs of modalities, and then a bunch of modalities all at once. And what we were trying to predict is when would bimodal training outperform unimodal training, you know, for given resource levels and so forth. And the scaling law is not perfect. We could talk about that if you want, but it makes predictions. And, you know, it does predict that at some point, like training on images and text would be better than training mm-hmm. on either alone, if you can get to sufficient scale. And that's one of our research efforts right now is try to test that hypothesis and go bigger scale and see if we can get there. You hit on what I was hoping you would hit on and the, the kind of the sense I'm getting of kind of where we're trying to go and, and where we are. Can you elaborate on the paper you mentioned a little bit more? How was that? How was it set up? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a research agenda going on right now. A bunch of folks, uh, we had the scaling law paper, and then more recently we had a, a chameleon paper that kind of followed up on that. I think you mentioned at the beginning a little bit. And the mindset is that even though diffusion-based models are kind of the rage for image generation right now, because we want to be able to put more and more modalities all into a single model, we're consciously stepping away from that. And instead, we're going back to the image sort of discretization, tokenization approach. And so, you know, you use VQGANs, you tokenize into sequences of tokens. And then basically, I'm an NLP person, right? So when I look at a continuous signal, I think, I wish that was a sequence of tokens because I would really know what to do with it a lot better. (laughs) And so basically, I'm just going to take any data I see and I'm going to tokenize it. And I'm going to turn it into a sequence of tokens. And eventually, I'd like to go byte level. This tokenization has irrecoverable loss, but that's where we are right now. Eventually, we'll push that further. But anyways, now I can look at any data in the world and then I can just say, okay, that's a sequence of tokens and I can apply all of my LLM tricks to train models. So this has cool implications in terms of being able to train with any combination of text. And, so let's just look at text and images, although people have certainly done it for audio and for video, not yet, but it, it will be soon. But if I look at any data, I can have any tokens in, any tokens out. So it's not text to image or image to text. It's just you know mixtures of text and image to mixtures of text and image. Okay, that's kind of the story. Uh, and, the, and the models work. And then you can do interesting things like train a bunch of different models, some on text only, some on image only, some on mixtures, and then look at their scaling properties as you scale the amount of data or you scale the number of parameters, tradition kind of scaling law sort of stuff. And you fit a power law and you see where we think there'll be crossing points. So where we think for a fixed amount of resource, you'd prefer to train bimodally instead of just training unimodally and you would get a better model for both of the modalities, if that makes sense. So when you talk about seeing images as sequence of tokens, how is that distinguished from how we would traditionally look at an image? When you say a token, is that a pixel vector or is it something else? Oh, yeah, good question. So the way these tokenizers work is there's a discrete vocabulary. It's really the same thing as an NLP model. So an NLP model, you have a vocabulary of 50,000 word pieces or maybe up to 100,000 words. In the image tokenizer, you're going to have a vocabulary of maybe 10,000 words or 20,000 words or even less, sometimes single thousand words. And what those words are is just less clear. So they're kind of gen sims, like they're arbitrary symbols. It's Mm. not the word the in English. It's just some arbitrary symbol. And then what you've trained is a model that can take an image, map it to a sequence of, let's say, 500 or 1,000 of those words. And then you throw away the image. You have another model that, given those image words, can map it back to the original image. And so you train an autoencoder that way. You get those two models. And then you can tokenize your data. So literally everything just becomes words. It's just some of the words are in this special image vocabulary that we know how to turn back into images. And some of the words are in a BPE that we know how to turn back into. And it's actually, you tokenize even on the text side, if, if you know the BPE details, for some listeners that do, there's no vectors, there's no nothing. It's just discrete symbols. 
And then we know how to apply all of our really cool NLP techniques very, very broadly. And we get like lots of really interesting functionality and things we can do. Like, for example, a single model that can take arbitrary mixtures of text and input, of text and images in the input and in the output, for example. Interesting. And so in this example, I think there's an LLM involved in this work here. Are you training on these tokenized images? Are you fine-tuning on these tokenized images or something altogether different? Both. The traditional LLM training pipeline now is basically, like you just said, two steps, right? You've got your pre-training step, which is typically done at incredible scale. It's very, very expensive, and it's all next token prediction for all the documents you can steal off the web or whatever, right? Your second step, which is, you know, either you pay people to label data or you get existing data sets and you do some supervised fine-tuning, which is generally a little bit cheaper, but the data is really secret sauce. And, and then you worry about safety and things like that. So with multimodal models, like that same recipe hasn't always been followed, right? So maybe it is, maybe it's not. There aren't that many open papers on how the pre-training works, but it hasn't been explored as much. Like typically you would just kind of, I mean, there's definitely safety work and tuning, but, it, but it's not as established. So for example, one thing we can do, and this is what the Chameleon paper was a few months ago, is we just apply that same recipe. We do exactly the same steps. We curate as much data as we can, that's text or images or mixtures of the two. And then we pull together a bunch of labeled data sets, kind of like Flan style fine tuning. Um, and we do those two stages, but we do it multimodally. And when you do your multitask fine tuning, you know, some of those are text to image tasks, some of those are image to text tasks, some of those are other things, it doesn't matter. The single model can do all those different things. And so you can tune on them all and you can get a very general, very controllable model by just kind of copying the recipe from LLMs directly over to multimodal. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an, a real advantage of our sort of tokenize everything worldview is that anything that works for LLMs, we're expected to work here. Another example is we've done, we've done versions of it that are retrieval augmented. So I don't know how much you've talked about retrieval augmentation in previous episodes and stuff. So we have that and, and it works. And Michi, a uh, student at Stanford that was an intern with us last summer, led that effort. And um, it was, a, I think, an ICML paper this year. I can't remember which conference, but it's on archive. And you can do retrieval augmentation, not exactly the same, but similar to like the Bing ChatGPT is retrieval augmented or whatever. You know, you go and pull in documents, mm-hmm. you put them in the context, you read them, that all works. You can literally use the same code. It's just the documents can be multimodal. And so we showed that there's really cool long tail phenomenon. So like, for example, if you want to generate a picture of a particular architectural style, like an Armenian church, they have very specific like steeple styles. Okay. And you know, it's Mm -hmm. a long tail thing. It's definitely in the pre-training data that all the image generation models are trained on, but it's not common. But if you can retrieve an example of that and put that in the context, the model can look at it when it's doing its generation, it can actually get it right. It can produce a much, much better image that actually has the right architectural style, for example. Interesting. Is part of the way that you evaluated this model relative to the to diffusion models? Like, do you see this as a demonstration of kind of this interesting effect of tokenizing or... Do you see this as a, a promising approach for image generation kind of on its own merits? I think that it is a promising approach for image generation on its own merits. And I think that the field shifted to stable diffusion for lots of good reasons. So one of the reasons is efficiency. A lot of the, or not necessarily stable diffusion, but just diffusion-based techniques in general. Diffusion models. Yeah, yeah. So one reason is efficiency, although we're finding you can train transformers much, much more efficiently and do more efficient inference with them. So I think that gap is kind of kind of go away over time. I mean, H100s have transformers on chip. So, you know, transformers are <laughs> going to catch up in terms of efficiency. And then the other thing is that the tokenization, you have some irrecoverable loss. Like I said, like a thousand tokens 
just isn't enough to perfectly reconstruct an image. But if you look, for example, at Google's Party paper, which is a really beautiful paper, you know, that that's a token-based approach. I thought that was an equation. A picture is worth a thousand tokens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I always not good at landing, <laughs> landing that joke, but that's one I should probably try for every time. <laughs> But, you know, Google's party came out at the same time as, I think, ImageGen. I can't remember exactly the two, but one was image-based and one was diffusion-based. And if you look at the images, they're both great. Both mm -hmm. technologies do an amazing job of generating images, and most of the trade-off is, like, efficiency and so forth. And we think we can solve the efficiency problem. So we're hoping to, like, reinvigorate the token-based, transformer-based image generation. And it has all these extra advantages that you can do these very universal things. You can use the same models for everything. You don't have to have, like, a separate model for image generation that you have to have for text generation. We got to prove that and we got to show that that actually scales. That's kind of a current research effort for us, but, but we're pretty confident that it's going to get there. Interesting. Another paper that I wanted to dig into with you is the uh, self-alignment with instruction back translation paper. That's an interesting one. Can you talk a little bit about the motivation there? Yeah, Shan did a really, really nice job with that paper. It's really great. I think the, again, we talked about sort of in pre-training, there's the two steps. There's the the really large scale next token prediction, and then there's the later fine tuning, which tends to be kind of smaller scale, just a little bit of data, or at least in comparison, very, very tiny amounts of data. And, you know, I think my personal prediction is that over time, these distinction is going to get kind of blurred. Okay, so there is lots of data on the web that looks like instruction data. That's why the model can zero shot stuff, because it sort of saw it in its pre-training. And, you know, mm -hmm. exactly what you put where and how you blend these things is, I think, is a really interesting area to explore. So this instruction back translation, in a way, was a first step towards that. And the idea was, okay. if you could get enough data that looks like instruction input-output pairs, like, you know, a prompt you might show to a chat, Thing like ChatGPT, if you can get enough of that data, you could train it on an incredible scale and you could eventually, you know, maybe you could get much better, more instructable models that can really do more things. And then the way you would get all that data is not obvious. Like it'd be super expensive to pay annotators or do the other things, but we can borrow this trick from the machine translation literature. It's called back translation. And the cool insight here is that if you can get examples, if you're trying to learn like a function from X to Y, whether it's a translation thing or whether it's an instruction thing, if you can get lots of good examples of high quality Ys, it's often easier to have a model write the X, which is the input anyways, and then use a real output Y that you gather. So you go find lots of really good things like essays you wish ChatGPT could have written for you or other documents. Mm -hmm. And then all you have to do is kind of come up with a prompt that would actually yield that output and you've got a training example. And so you can get models to do that very easily. I think we did it, you know, a few shot with an off-the-shelf model. It's not that hard to write the input. It's much, much easier than writing the output. And then you can, mm -hmm. you know, make essentially unlimited amounts of data. And then you can study how much does it help to actually scale up that second stage relative to the first stage or, you know, how do you sort of do more interesting ways of blending them together. Now, granted, one big use of LLMs is to create content like you might find on the web. But do you find that the instructions that are learned or this tuning approach more broadly, is it generalizable to lots of different types of content? Or does it just create a model that's really good at creating web articles? I think that it, it, it does generalize. I don't know that we have a perfect answer for how much it generalizes. I do think of it as like unlocking abilities the model already has when you do this fine tuning. If you want to get a lot of different instruction stuff, what you want to do is kind of cover a lot of different domains. In some internal experiments we did at some point, we found various versions of Llama or whatever. It wasn't very good at poetry generation out of the box, you know, just from the pre-training without the alignment. Okay. But then we found that if you fine tune it on like three prompts, 
of like write a poem about this and then example poems, maybe slightly more than three, but a very small number, it would unlock poetry very generally. So it could do all kinds of other styles of poetry you hadn't taught it. It, it kind of it had that knowledge, but it was somehow not exposed to the prompting. But it didn't make it better at like writing cooking recipes, but it made it better at like poetry more generally. So it's like you get a certain amount of generalization beyond what you exactly show it, but you still want to get lots of examples of lots of different stuff across the whole range of different things you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the examples from the paper was demonstrating that the model gets better at a math problem, kind of like a word, a word problem. If you remember that example, it was something like, you know, John ran, it was like two track times, and then it separately gave the length of the track and it asked the LLM to figure out his average pace. And I think without this approach, I think it was maybe raw llama, it was way off. And then with this approach, it was better. It's amazing that that works. Like, why Why does this approach make the model better at that kind of reasoning problem? Yeah, so I think the reason is exactly the same thing as I was just saying for the poetry, where poetry is like more of a style of text, whereas math maybe requires more reasoning. I would say the model has those abilities already, but they're kind of not mm. exposed. They're not promptable. They're not tunable. They haven't been sort of tuned in a way that they know how to respond to the prompts yet. Because maybe on the web, it didn't see a prompt exactly like those word problems, or at least not in the right setting. We have some of those examples in the instruction back translation data. And so that exposes not, not that exact word problem, but some sort of math things that give it the ability to kind of expose that information it already has. That's my intuition. I don't think we have a super hard science to really definitively nail that and say that's absolutely what's happening. But that's, my, that's our best intuition right now. Yeah, I think that this is getting into the kind of, kind of clearly getting into the we don't understand why these models work the way they do and kind of the whole emergent properties idea. Complex system science type angle, that's right. Yeah, it's not that the untuned model, uh, untuned as in not using the, the approach demonstrated in this paper, it's not that that kind of the before model couldn't follow the formatting it, like it. It, the formatting was plausible. It's just that the numbers were wrong. And I guess the the formatting was better in the sense of like it broke down the problem a little bit better and it didn't get thrown off by kind of an easy but wrong approach in that example. But yeah, it's just really surprising that this kind of tuning produced that kind of result. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. And I think it just see a few examples of that math being done right, of the numbers being threaded, and it can often get it. Although I would say in general, all the models are still a little bit brutal on the math front, right? Like, <laughs> for the amount of resources and the amount of data they've seen, the fact that they still struggle with certain types of arithmetic is like a little bit, a little bit surprising. So that's another thing I would love to analyze more and understand more over time. I think that's just kind of where we are. And people do a lot of specialized tuning. We don't really know what goes into ChatGPT before it gets released, but I would be mm -hmm. shocked if there isn't specialized math tuning going on before it gets released. Yeah. And was that math-oriented example chosen because you think there's some special relationship between the approach that was described in the paper and having models do math better, or was it just an interesting example? I think it's more of an interesting example to show like the breadth of domains that it works for, but it wasn't like specifically designed to work with math, for example. Okay. You talk about the creation of the seed data set. I think the seed was kind of manually curated, right? So okay. what you want to do is sort of write examples that you think look like good input output pairs to start things out from. Okay. And can you talk about kind of the scale of the seed versus the result that you kind of part of the point here is that you don't have to manually label, create a lot of you know instruction examples. How many did you have to do ultimately? 
I can't remember the final number. I think it was in the thousands. I'd have to go review in the paper exactly, but, it, but it's not a huge number. And I think in general, people have done a lot of alignment work. Thousands of examples is reasonable. It's not that expensive. Annotators know how to do it. You can even just do it yourself if you spend, you know, a, maybe not a day. But uh, remember, you also don't necessarily have to write the full output, right? Like you can find the outputs and just write the prompts. And so you only have to kind of write mm -hmm. a sentence for each example, that kind of thing. I think it's it's a reasonable approach. I mean, I think there you could do a lot more research and making it more efficient and like using a smaller seed. But but for me, the more interesting thing would be to like try to scale it bigger, try to understand like what happens as you get more and more instruction data for your alignment stage and what types of data you actually need, like a more fine-grained analysis of how much you can generalize, like we were talking about before, the different trade-offs and so forth. Mm -hmm. In the context of the paper and more broadly, is there a difference between an instruction and a prompt? Like when you're coming up with these instruction examples, are you... You shook your head no, so that's the <laughs> You're coming up with the prompts that would generate the output as opposed to some meta instruction that when operated on a prompt would produce the output or something like no, that. No, it's very simple. It's just if I were to type this into an LLM, I would hope yeah. it would produce the output that's there. That's It's very simple. Yeah. And so in the method that you propose, you have this two-step approach well, or three-step approach, but you kind of iterate and produce two candidate models, would you expect that you can continue to improve the results by continuing to iterate like three and four? And It will saturate eventually. I don't know exactly. I don't expect that 10 iterations would really work, but I think future work get there. And especially if you like expand the scope as you iterate, I think it's really interesting to explore in the future, but I don't think we have a good answer yet. A lot of these iterative methods, you know, the sort of prior is that kind of two, three iterations is what you need. You would dream that it would just take off and get better and better over time, but that's actually surprisingly hard to achieve in practice. So alignment has come up, you know, multiple times in talking through these papers as a concept, and you've got a paper that focuses on alignment called Lima, less is more for alignment. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? Yeah, something did this work is really great. You know, again, this it has sort of a practical aspect in the sense that we're trying to get, you know, understand alignment, make systems better by aligning them, but also this really nice analysis science aspect of like what's actually going on at this stage and what how much data do you actually need and what kind of data. And so Chunting asked this really interesting question, like how simple can you make it? Do you really need all the RLHF? Do you really need all the labeled data and so forth? And so, you know, she, she did a, an experiment of very carefully hand curating a, a small set of supervised data for alignment. You know, I think it was, ended up being around a thousand examples and then just did really simple supervised fine tuning on that data with no extra algorithms or anything. And the model was kind of shockingly good, way better than you would expect. I mean, it certainly doesn't solve the alignment problem, but way better than you would expect given so little signal. And so again, this gets back to some of those themes we were talking about before. But to me, that really suggests that most of what the model is doing was already there during pre-training. And the alignment is mm -hmm. just kind of exposing. That's the evidence I have. Not perfect, but the evidence I have that you're just kind of exposing functionality that was there. And it's not learning as much from the alignment as we think, at least at the scale that people are often doing it at the smaller scale. What tasks did you evaluate on? Uh, I'd have to go look at the exact paper, but I think it was kind of the standard task that people look at. Okay. I, I forget the exact set. Yeah. And when you say that this, the model that was created with the curated data set did, I forget if you said well or better, but can you provide any more color on the relative performance and what you saw there? Roughly speaking, it would be like if you had an unaligned model here and you had like a really good aligned model over here, you know, you'd be sort of 80% of the way there. 
on various, mm -hmm. you know, sort of zero shot prompting tasks or whatever. So you wouldn't get all the way. And if you got like really out of domain, so far from the kinds of topics we covered in those thousand prompts, you know, that would be more challenging for the model. But the, the more you're closer, the better. So for example, the poetry example I gave earlier, where you only had to put in a few poems, that was part of that work. It could do a lot of different poems, more than just the two or three that we put in the thousand examples. And actually, one interesting thing when we talk about, this is one of my pet peeves, so I'll just go off on the side rant, sorry. But we actually don't know how to evaluate these models very well. So if I gave you like ChatGPT1 and ChatGPT2, uh, I'm sure OpenAI has their own better way of doing it. But in terms of like public knowledge and good science and academia and open science and so forth, we actually don't have a good answer for how to tell you whether one is better than two. Mm -hmm. Okay, so people play with them, they interact with them, but we actually don't know how to do that. And I think that the fact that it's better on certain benchmarks, maybe you're doing MMLU, maybe you're doing whatever, is nice, but that is not a good proxy of how, how general that model is and how it's going to do when you deploy it and it interacts with millions of users or something, right? And the challenge of actually figuring out which model is better for, you know, really unrestricted prompting, I think that's like a grand challenge for the field right now. That's like super open and really, un really unclear how to do it. And so that's a little bit why I was also kind of hesitating when you're asking me about like, was it actually better? How much was it better? I actually don't what think does that really mean? Questions in a convincing way. Yeah, I don't think we know how to do that. But it shouldn't stop us from working on the models, but we should just be realistic about what we're actually able to measure in practice. Uh, and so be a little bit careful about the claims we're making. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of a recent interview with James O of Stanford, where they looked at, well, just the example that you gave, GPT-3, GPT-3.5, and compared their performance. But even in that conversation, like the, you know, that comparison is very specific. When you think about how do these things perform, you want to characterize them broadly, but they've found that they perform worse on like chain of thought reasoning, but they perform better on these things. It's not kind of, you know, performance isn't uniformly improved, but one would think that OpenAI valued alignment in certain dimensions over performance on chain of thought reasoning in, in certain dimensions. And that's kind of the way the models were pushed. Yeah, or maybe they just didn't have those benchmarks in whatever the development cycle was. And maybe, you know, or it's that. not always intentional. <laughs> you know, it may not. Yeah. I am mean, OpenAI is doing amazing work. And so mm -hmm. probably they did. But, but I, I suspect you don't even have to make those trade-offs. But I think one interesting thing is if we don't even, like, there's always going to be gaps, right? Because when you put a model in front of a user and allow it to arbitrarily prompt it, I mean, that's one of the big breakthroughs in the GPT, I guess it was three or, or maybe two, I'm not sure. But just the notion that like you can really prompt for anything and you can reduce any kind of natural language processing problem to a prompting problem in a language model. I mean, that was really a revolutionary idea. It seems mm -hmm. obvious in hindsight, but like everybody else missed it, right? But then once you make that shift in worldview, you, you realize that actually we have no idea how to evaluate that. Because literally you can do anything with the model. Right. So how are you yeah. going to get a fixed set of K examples that test for anything? Right? It just, it's going right. to, K is going to have to be really big and it's going to be really complicated. And then there's the fact that it, like static evaluations are not a great proxy for long form generation. Uh, they're not a great proxy for chat. Like there's just so much going on in these models that we don't really know how to evaluate, which I think is great. I think that's fascinating as a researcher, right? Like lots to do, mm -hmm. uh, but it, you should also be realistic about where we are. Yeah, absolutely. You are also really excited about open source and open science as a way to advance the field. Talk about, you know, why that is so important to you. Yeah, I think that there's lots of reasons why open science is important. I think that sharing your ideas publicly puts them up to scrutiny and the work gets better. 
I think that having more people thinking about these problems is good and will make progress better as a field. And I think in general, giving people access to models that they can do cool things with also just creates lots of opportunities. I mean, look at the startup ecosystem around Llama models, right? It's really beautiful and amazing. And it is true that, you know, I don't want to discount the fact that the models can be used for harm. That is true, but there are great safety controls and we're always getting better at that. And I also want to remember that the models can be used for incredible good too. Like they can do really amazing things. And that when you lock off one, you lock off the other two. So I think it's really cool to see the amazing things people can do with the models when you release them. I think we learn more as a field and we move faster. And I think it's just really like a democratizing effect that everybody can participate and we're not kind of locking people out. And all those are very, very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Going back to a point you made very early in the conversation is, has it become somewhat of a necessity for the vast majority of researchers in the sense of the resources required to train these large models from scratch is so huge. If there wasn't an open source and open science aspect of the, the field, it would be very difficult for many researchers to be involved. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I do agree with that. And I think also, you know, like it's important to have full access to all the parameters of the model, like really be able to download the model. So for example, if you look at API access, which a bunch of companies starting with OpenAI have done, like those models often change behind the scenes. Think about you mm -hmm. want to do science and you've run experiments with a model and then somebody pushed an update to the model and now you can't recreate your paper. These kinds of things. Like it's just really, really bad for reproducibility, which is, you know, a hallmark of doing good science, right? Like that's one of our one of our goals. <laughs> we need to be able to yeah. like study things, measure them, and reproduce it. And if we can't do that, it's really, really bad for the field. Yeah. Thinking about the areas that you're working on, kind of, you know, talk to us a little bit about the future that you see between multimodal, focusing on data, open source. Where's your research agenda headed and what do you see down the line? I mean, I think models are going to get much, much better. They're going to get even more expensive for a while. And then the interesting trends, like we talked about earlier, like when you run out of data, what do you do? Maybe then you can start doing really cool work on like getting as much out of existing data as possible. Right now we're getting like low hanging fruit because we can always just keep scaling. Eventually we're going to maybe have some hope to do more interesting stuff and go deeper with it. But overall, you know, I feel like we're just in this time of incredible change and the models are going to keep getting better and better, but like, good luck predicting exactly where they're going, right? <laughs> if you look back even 12 months, like you couldn't predict where we'd be today, right? So I, right. I don't know that I have super concrete predictions about exactly like what the breakthroughs are going to be, but I think you know, data is going to be a component. Eventually, things are going to hopefully get more efficient. There's sort of the way we're doing the scaling right now, we're kind of all copying one recipe from OpenAI, a little bit of adapting, but, but largely we're just copying one recipe. And I think... We need new recipes. We need to think about efficiency. We need to think about how wasteful it is to do some of this stuff. And though I think there'll be some big breakthroughs in those areas for sure. And then hopefully that will democratize the models even more, make them more usable by people, make them make us understand them better. So that's kind of yeah, I think a lot of that will happen. But I couldn't tell you like within eighteen months we'll have X Y Z model that will do this other thing. Or yeah, I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not that great of a predictor. Yeah. <laughs> Now, granted that we've, you know, spent the last 45 minutes or so talking about some of the ways that you think these recipes will change or there kind of other ideas that come to mind in terms of promising you know, ideas or approaches and that will impact the way we train these models. 
Yeah, I think one that I'm very excited about is just like sparsity and conditional compute. The notion that you're not just kind of densely connecting everything to everything across the layers in the network, but mm-hmm. you know a lot more like how the brain works, that there's very sparse interconnect uh, and so forth. I don't know that much about how the brain works, but it's still a great inspiration in terms of its power usage and things like that. And I think there'll be some big breakthroughs there. And I, and I think the rumor has it that like a lot of the big companies have stopped publishing what they're doing, right? And so that's kind of sad. We're like losing access to a lot of information about the latest round of models. Tech reports are getting less and less details about the methods every time they come out. But but rumor has it that like the big labs have been investing a lot in like conditional compute, mixture of experts, sparsity, because, you know, in the end, you can only take this dense scaling that we're on so far. You can buy 100,000 H100s. Uh, that's amazing. I'm sure somebody's going to do it. But then eventually you've got to do something more creative because even getting those to all talk to each other, there's like laws of physics limitations that are coming up and you've got to think about sparsity and other ways of doing things, I think, eventually to keep scaling. So given the the limitation that you just mentioned in terms of kind of scaling around dense networks and the previous limitation you mentioned around kind of running out of textual data to train on. Do you feel like progress will slow relative to kind of this burst of progress we recently had or? I mean, at some point, yes, <laughs> but I wouldn't bet on wind. So like, no, I, I guess I mean near term, like, do you think there's a near term imminent slowing before we come up with the next thing that kind of creates the next elbow on the curve? Or do you think we still have runway on the things we're doing now? that'll give us time to figure out the next thing. I think we still have runway at least a few years. And and eventually we're going to get into video. The amount of data in video is compared to text. There's a lot of data in video. <laughs> and we could be yeah. looking at podcasts, for example. <laughs> we could be listening to them and look at <laughs> I mean, the video here. It's not that exciting. But, the, you know, imagine you could train on all of YouTube. Like, what could you learn mm-hmm. about civilization from that? Like, you could learn a lot, right? And so I don't think we're necessarily going to run out of data soon. I think we've got a long runway, but maybe text only is not going to be the main focus after a while. It's more, it's more my feeling. Uh, and that there's going to be huge sort of need to come up with better algorithms or maybe just better versions of GPUs, I don't know, to actually make sense of all that data. And so the scaling trend, I think, is alive for a while, uh, but just a little different looking than it, than it currently is. Mm, awesome. Well, Luke, thanks so much for taking the time to chat about what you're up to. It's very exciting work. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's super fun. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.